0: What do you know about swashbuckling? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. <laughs> And welcome, my friends, to the end of the episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Uh, you people uh, who watch and listen to the program know I'm in the United States of America. And today is Memorial Day here. End of a very long weekend. And I have to say, I can't wait for this weekend to be over with. We got a couple more hours, three more hours and until this weekend is a a memory. And it can't go soon enough for me. It's been one one hellish long holiday weekend here. And I won't get into the details, but it's not been a fun one for me. And I will just say it started out Thursday night. Very good. We were kicking off summer with a concert for the band on the beach. Everything was going swimming, uh, great weather. And then it took a left turn into Hill. Uh, And so I rushed home to do this show because I had a a gig today, uh, which started in cold and wind and rain but ended up kind of sunny and nice out. Uh, You could probably hear my voice. I've been singing for four hours, so a little bit of uh, problems with the voice, but glad to be here. Glad to say goodbye to this weekend, and we're going to have a really nice conversation tonight. Uh, You're probably going to recognize my guest. Chances are you will. He's an actor, author, and swordsman. Yeah. which I don't really know about too much about the swordsman part of it, but we'll learn about that uh, before I bring him in, I need to quickly talk about my sponsors. tonight's show is brought to you by audiobooksnow dot com audiobooksnow dot com um, you know about audiobooks you know about the convenience of audiobooks. You also know there You can get them just about anywhere on the web right now. So what makes Audiobooks now different? What sets them apart? Well, the answer is simple. Price point, price point, price point. Audiobooks now club pricing plan is simply the best deal on Audiobooks you'll find. It offers the savings and flexibility not found anywhere else. With their save on everything discounts, rollovers, exclusive offers, loyalty program, incredible selection, and cancel anytime policy simply can't be beat. Plus, get a free premium audiobook when you click the link that's in the description tonight. You'll also get an offer to join uh, the club pricing plan for a 30-day free trial. Absolutely free for 30 days. It's normally $4.99 a month. It's absolutely free to try for 30 days. you don't like it, uh, you can just cancel and you won't be billed a penny for it. You can listen to a lot of books in 30 days, my friends uh with audiobooks now you save on every audiobook you purchase they don't uh use gimmicky credits to hide the true cost of the books whether you want to save big through the club pricing plan or simply purchase at their everyday low prices they offer one of the largest selections on audiobooks anywhere you can download or stream your audiobooks through the website or free apps and all apps include in-app purchasing Uh, and the link is in the description and i certainly do appreciate you patronizing our sponsors now I said you will probably uh chances are you will recognize my guest tonight he's uh he's an actor who's been in some significant works that you would have seen Oop, looks like we just lost him, so I better ramble while uh we see if he can reconnect uh <laughs> we just lost him from the the room there, so I'll just continue talking until I see him come on back on uh because I don't I don't want to ruin it. What if he doesn't get back on? What if his, his machine just died and that's it for tonight and he's not coming back? So I'm not going to introduce him until uh, I do see him back in the room. So uh, just stand by. Hopefully he will show up. Uh, I mentioned this has been Memorial Day weekend here. You know, I just want to say happy Memorial Day weekend. It's not the proper greeting. Okay, he's back. Let me let me continue. <laughs> uh Chris CC C. Humphreys has played Hamlet in Calgary, uh a Gladiator in Tunisia and a Dead Immortal in The Highlander. He's walked in London's West End. Khan, the landlord of the rover's return in the Corinthian Street, uh, commanded a Starfleet in uh, Andromeda, and voiced Salem the Cat in the original Sabrina. I'm, I'm wondering if that's the one I'm thinking of with Melissa Joan Hart. Anyway, uh, the play uh, he's a playwright. His plays have been produced in Calgary, Vancouver, and London. He has published 20 novels, including The French Executioner, uh, The Jack Absolute Trilogy, Vlad, The Last Confession, a place called Armageddon, and Shakespeare's Rebel. His novel plague won the arthur ellis award in the best crime novel in canada in 2015 his latest book is called one london day ladies and gentlemen please open your ears open your minds and help me welcome in chris cc Humphreys to the mind dog tv podcast chris welcome
1: hey hello nice to be here thanks for the intro
0: it's my pleasure to have you here can i ask where you are are you in canada are you in in london
1: uh, i am in canada despite my confusing accent I'm in uh, on a place called or on an island called salt Spring island in uh, British Columbia Western Canada I'm uh, would you like me to take you on a quick tour and I'll show you the fjord sure why not yeah why not people like to see the fjord this is my little studio I, where, I'm, where I'm living like right you. now and uh, and this is this is my view wow it's beautiful pretty nice huh yeah, yeah and it's it looks there. like summer. It's it's got really warm today. Yes, yes. I was wearing a nicer sweater earlier on but I I've I've, I've uh, stripped down to my t-shirt. I won't go any further your audience is safe. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm a little bit jealous because it's supposed to be summer here, but we had a weekend of 48 degrees and cold, windy rain and it was not a a good weekend for us here. But, uh, you know, glad to see you. You, Somebody's got nice weather and and it's great to know where you are. That is a beautiful place.
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely lovely. I I live in a forest overlooking a fjord. So for half Norwegian, that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, uh, so you're a, a super interesting guy, and here's the thing that I've noticed more and more now: uh, creative people. Are not limiting themselves to one thing. Acting and authorship should be enough, but throwing swordsmen on top of that uh, is a really unique uh, thing. Let's get that out of the way. Teach me a little bit of. Tell me something about swordsmanship. Well,
1: as it happens, I just happen to have my uh, back sword here. This is a, what they call a back sword. It's so oh, it's quite long, isn't it? It doesn't quite yeah. fit in the frame. It's a uh, 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 a sort of late Elizabethan style uh, broadsword. And um, if uh, I was uh, fighting with this, I'd probably match it up with what they call a buckler, which is a small shield, you know, like the size of a dinner plate which you use. And, and that, for all your uh, uh, watchers, your uh, viewers' information, is what, where you get the term swashbuckle from because i used to you know when i fought with it before and when people fought with it originally if they were looking for a fight which the british tend to do quite a lot and even more back then they did they would beat their buckler i wish i had my buckler here but i mean you beat your buckler you'd strike it with that metallic sound which is basically saying come on then who wants a who wants a bundle and so you swash your buckler then hence, what's
0: got it now. I noticed there is uh, the tip is sworn, uh, is uh, knocked off. There's no sharp tip on the end of that, right? No,
1: there's no sharp anything on this. This is a, a practice sword, really. So, right. uh, it's used for stage combat. Um, you know, I, I don't, it's not allowed to go out and kill people with swords anymore. So, I keep the ages and point
0: blunt. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to kill anybody with anything anymore. Um, wow. But, <laughs> So finding people to practice the art of swordsmanship with must be a bit of a challenge, no?
1: Uh, yes, I don't. To be honest, um, I don't. Uh, I don't indulge much in it's. It's the least of my attributes these days. Partly for that reason, uh, you know, in in these circumstances lately, uh, and also on Salt Spring. Yes, it's kind of hard to find people to to uh, cross swords with. So, uh, believe it, it or
0: not, I've had I, I've had a, a swordsman on on before. A guy who teaches swords for Broadway and theatrical stuff, and and uh, does Renaissance fairs and all that stuff. His name mm. is. Joe Joe De Nozio. Oh, and, uh, yeah. don't know. You know the name?
1: No, I don't know him. I don't know him. The, uh, um, the the it's quite a uh, a big world. The sword fighting world. People, there's lots of different niches and stuff. There's uh, there's an amazing place in Vancouver where I do a lot of fighting. Where it's called Academy Duelo, and it's one of the best. Um, what what they call Western martial arts, and it's an wow. amazing place. And so you can uh, you can study every aspect of swordsmanship and. You know all sorts of unarmed combats there as well.
0: It's so it's such an interesting thing, and it uh, it always uh, you always have something to talk about at parties, right? Because uh, I, I imagine any social gathering you're in, you're the only person who's really a, a swordsman there.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, I, su- I suppose that's true. I I, I think I can I can uh, bore people to death with my once I get onto swordplay. I've I've know right. I became an actor essentially so I could leap around with bladed weaponry. You know, that was my main goal. I wasn't intent on playing Hamlet. I wanted to be D'Artagnan. I wanted to be Zorro, Zorro particularly. Um, right. And um, because I lived in California till I was seven. So he was the local hero. And um, I think my first, one of the first pictures of me is in a Zorro outfit. So I, I, I always loved the swordplay. I became a fencer. You know, sport fencing at school, was the school sabre champion and uh, various competitions around England where I grew up later. And um, and then, um, you know, did actually a ton of sword fighting on screen. I don't really tap dance. I'm not a great singer, but I can wield a blade. And so I did, you know, like you mentioned Highlander. I'm an immortal from Highlander, you know. Uh, Though it's a bit of a cheat because I'm a dead immortal. I don't know quite how that works. But anyway... (laughs)
0: <laughs> I survived briefly. Um, it, that's an oxymoron. Yeah, uh, it, it is, isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, the gladiator you mentioned, I played uh, a uh, a Jewish zealot who became Rome's top gladiator in a biblical Roman epic in the '80s called AD or Anna wow. Nye, and I filmed that in Tunisia for. 10 months and took me to Hollywood for a couple of years and all that stuff. So that was great. That was, that was my loincloth
0: acting days, which fortunately for everyone present, I don't do anymore. So, um, okay. Um, you know, I mentioned that you're very diverse now. You, uh, you got the, the authorship and the acting, uh, and even in both of those, you're very diverse. Now I'm looking over at the things you've written, Besides playwright and, and and novels being a very different uh, uh, endeavor, uh, the novels that you've written are kind of all over the map in terms of um, genre, it's true. Uh, and, and, and types of things like that. So uh, I'm just interested uh, where. Where does that focus come from? Do you, you just get stories that pop into your mind? I mean, uh, most people pick one genre, yeah, and I, so they, yeah, I know. And I, yeah. I,
1: I probably could have been uh, richer and more successful uh, if I if I'd done that. You know, people like to pigeonhole you. It was the same as me as an actor. You know, when I when I started out, believe it or not, I was young and pretty, and and I was cla- I was cast as this. english upper middle class guy which i really wasn't because i was a canadian american kid who managed to lose the accent through various school iterations and drama school and stuff but anyway i did that for a while but i got bored and so you know when i got cast as a jewish gladiator it was amazing and that took me to hollywood and, and i've always tried to be diverse in my acting roles as well and then um with the writing it's kind of similar i mean i started out wanting to write historical fiction for sure with the novels and um you know, that was the genre I always read growing up. Uh, the swashbuckling helped. You know, I loved all that stuff. But you know, the the various things that happen along your along your publishing journey, someone had suggested to me about young adult fiction, and did I have any ideas? And I didn't really. And then I came up with one, and they sold it in ten. 10- Days to Knopf in New York, you know, with a like a one page or five page treatment or something. So I suddenly wrote a trilogy called the Runestone Saga, which was all about runic magic and time travel. And that, you know, I I used to call it when when, I loved it. I I used to call it when Harry Potter met Herman Hess because it was that sort of, you know. (laughs) German existential philosophy versus magic, you know. Um, And uh, uh, so I wrote those, uh, and they were, yeah, I called them earth magic rather than fantasy. But then I wrote a fantasy trilogy, which was more sort of, more slightly straighter fantasy about a about a, a young woman from New York who journeys through the unicorn tapestries, which are in the cloisters in New York City, to the land of the fabulous beasts. She's summoned by a unicorn and called Moonspill, and that was and so she has to go to medieval beast world and survive there. And so that that went for three books. That's called the Tapestry Trilogy, and then and then I went back and forth with the historical as well. Um, you know, so really, to answer your question, Matt, it's it's it, I, I get interested in a story, and and it, it's that that sort of comes first, and then uh, and then after that, it becomes uh, you know if 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 you know I my agents or I sell it to a publisher, you know, often it's again, do you want this idea, you know, um, and it used to be easier. I have to say, the publishing industry has contracted quite a bit. They'd rather
0: I was one thing, but. You know, I, I would get bored, I think. Right. Yeah, no, they definitely – and this is something I talk to because I have, not, I have well-known authors on and I have aspiring authors uh, who listen to the program. And so I, I always think um, talking, uh, when, especially when I have authors on, uh, to readers out there but also to aspiring authors. And I say this to everybody in the creative arts is that uh, any business – Uh, that has to do with the creative arts they want to pigeonhole you they want you to be a mcdonald's hamburger so that you can do the same thing over and over again so people always know what they're going to get and the more you try to uh be creative and go outside the box or be a little bit different than that same hamburger the less chances you're going to have for uh commercial success uh you you've had some success in spite of uh, <laughs> I'm breaking that rules, right? Yeah, yeah. Inspired,
1: I mean, you know, the the latest uh, my latest novel is a case in point because you know I've either written historical fiction or I've written fantasy, and then I decided I really wanted I, I that's the one one under day, thank you. <laughs> I, I I stumbled across a, a, a an incident happened actually to a friend of mine in a very ordinary street in a very ordinary part of North London, kind of the area I grew up, uh, and a and a very ordinary seeming man was gunned down in the street it was a hit and uh, it's uh, it, this happened about 20 years ago but it, it struck me at the time that that it fascinated me that that this ordinary person in, a, in an ordinary street could be caught up in extraordinary circumstances i mean it, it was a crime story in the end i've made it something slightly different i've made it a um well it is a crime obviously because it's an assassination but it's more to do with uh, um, MI5 spies, hence the cover is a bit spy. it's a bit bond like, isn't it? The cover. Um, yeah. And um, and uh, what, you know, going back to what you were saying about them wanting you to write the same thing. So C.C. Humphreys is usually historical fiction. But I said, look, I, you know, this, I, I think it's, you know, it, I've certainly enjoyed writing it. It's my background, it's where I grew up, it's the people I knew, it's London, which is my city. Um, and, but I, Editors, the, all the crime editors in London, the big houses, went, oh, God, this is amazing. It's noir. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. But what is it exactly? I mean, you know, we got, we don't, there's no protagonist as such. There's like five people. I say five people, two murders one day. You follow the hitman. Then you follow the victim. Then you go back a few days. This um, Jewish accountant, happily happily married family man with his daughter about to have a bat mitzvah and all that. But he's doing the books. He was an accountant, right? He also in property, uh, old school paper, because the only trail you can't find follow these days is a paper trail, right? Uh, for this group of uh, rogue MI5 agents called The Shadows. They're all very upper class English, all met at Oxford, you know, and all that. And they're using all the intel that they get in MI5 to run people, you know, refugees, drugs, you name it, they run it. And so they want, but they needed the books done properly. And he seemed like, you know, Joe Normal except when checking uh, uh, um, his latest tenant out of a small apartment uh, that he owns, um, he, uh, he walks into a room and sees her reaching up into a chimney. She's a sort of young pianist and he sees the small of her back and he has that moment and he's gone. He's suddenly obsessed by her. And so Joe Normal suddenly starts making mistakes and then we follow her and she's in love with this latest young hot black actor in London uh, and he, well, sort of in love, he's, they're falling out because he's become such a, an idiot. Um, and then, but he's obsessed by this Russian escort called Sonia, who's in London, beautiful, ex special forces, actually. But she's in London for one year to make enough money to pay for her daughter's uh, cancer operation at John Hopkins. So she's going to work for one year as a prostitute. That's not who she is. And those <laughs> characters circle around until we have. One London day, a hit in the morning, a hit in the evening, and everything in between. So yeah, that's so people didn't, didn't didn't get it at all. I mean, boy, they got it, they liked it, but they because the industry is now absolutely dominated by sales and marketing rather than editors. They need a pigeonhole for it, and it's 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 um it's a crime novel, it's a thriller, but it's really a character study as well. It's about a bad obscen- wow,
0: not least. I think all they need to do is have you just say what you just said to me to as many people as possible, and the book's going to be a hit. I mean, uh, first of all, just listening to that description of of the work that you've created, um, it, it boggles my mind to to wonder... Uh, how the creative process worked in that because it, you went so in so many directions. And the fact that there is no single protagonist in the book is a very unusual uh, way to go about writing it. When, and you, you're right. When I first looked at it, I thought James Bond Um uh, so <laughs> it it's it, I would expect to have that strong bond type character in there um would well, that must have been a real um, hurdle in selling the book to to the publishers right in the fact that there's there's no there's no protagonist what do you mean there's no protagonist
1: that's right there's, there's these people caught up in an event and and that's you know took, took take me back to the beginning what I was telling you about an ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances this, Quiet street in Finchley. I mean, affluent, but you know, up uh, uh, you know, sort of middle-class people. But um, you know, what, that's what set me going about it. How do ordinary people get caught up in extraordinary circumstances? There, there's no protagonist. There is a definite antagonist, though. This guy, right. Sebastian, who's the who's the head of the Shadows. He is such. He's one of the nastiest villains I've created. I think. So, so he kind of sets a lot of it, a lot of it going. And the hitman himself is quite interesting because he's just he's a professional but he's got a whole private life you know when you're when you're in the first chapter and he's building up to the hit he's what he goes to work at his his tick is he goes to work out at a gym before he does a hit and he has gyms all over London, so he's just in the gym listening to Lenny Kravitz doing his bench presses, and um, and the phone goes and tells him where the hit is, and so and then he has to and he and but the first phone that goes is his ex-wife, and he's meant to pick up his seven-year-old daughter um, early because she wants to go off to the shops, and and so he's got all that stuff going on while he's thinking about doing the hit. So another uh, uh, man who's who's not ordinary but has ordinary circumstance ordinary background
0: you know yeah, so yeah um, most hitmen I don't know if people know this, but most people, most hitmen, do live very ordinary lives. They they have regular jobs and families and stuff, and you would never suspect that they're hitmen. Uh, but this is fascinating to me because this came about. It's not it, it's not really historical fiction, but it was, the seed was planted by an actual event. Is that fair enough to say?
1: The seed was totally planted, and, and that's often the way. I mean, I you know when I because I, I teach uh, quite a lot of writing now, particularly historical fiction writing and um, and thrillers as well, because most of my stuff are thrillers, really. They're historical, but they're thrillers. But I always say, you know, people say, oh, research, you know, you have to get the details right. And I say, well, yeah, it's good to get the details right. But the point of research is not about the details, good that though, though they are to get right. A, a, a good fact is actually a springboard for the imagination. That's right. what you use it for. That's when you go, Ah, you know, wow, that that's interesting. This, you know, so so finding out stuff about MI5, for example, and, right, and finding oh, okay, so they're into all that stuff. Um, or um, or the you can see the cover there uh, has a Glock for the L of London. Um, my friend, um, this sounds like a big name drop here, but my friend Diana Gabaldon uh, showed me her Glock. <laughs> wow, <laughs> and, uh, and you know we. T- Took it apart, put it back together again. So you know that was hugely stimulating for some of the writing in the book, where the the hitman's figuring out different aspects of his of the tool of his trade. You know, so I always th- and but it's not simply that, of course. You know, it's 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 a springboard. It it gives you an insight into who he is, the meticulous right. qualities he needs to possess, and all that. So
0: yeah. So were you? Uh, and this is kind of a sidetrack here, but you just mentioned this because I was going to mention to the people on the audio side. We're showing the book cover now. It's called One London Day, and it's uh, five people, uh, <laughs> two murders, one day. I got the, the tagline's a little small. Excuse me. So, uh, but the book cover is extraordinary. As I mentioned, it does have a very Bondish feel to it. Uh, did you? Uh, were you really involved, heavily involved in the design of the book cover?
1: I was. I was. I asked a friend of mine who'd done some other sort of artwork around another one of my books called uh, Vlad the Last Confession, though My easily my most successful book, The True History of Dracula, um, and uh, the historical guy. And uh, Robbie was uh, did some amazing artwork based on that. He's, an, he's a very talented artist. His name is Rob Edmonds of a company called Evoke. But he's really does mostly interior design and stuff these days, but he's always doing other things, arty things. And I said to him, have you ever done a book? and he went, no, and I said, would you do one for me? He said, sure, so I sent him the book, and then he came up with the concept, uh, and and I just loved it. I mean, I made a few tweaks in terms of positioning of, of some of the, um, the like the shout line at the top, that it's a very nice quote from Robert DeGoney, who's a hugely successful crime writer, and a friend of mine, um, and, and I changed the tagline, and we got that, but literally, it was a few placement things. He came up with the whole concept, the idea of the shadows, of course, are the villains. So to have a guy walking across with a shadow that that go that wraps around the spine and goes under the back cover is also rather lovely. So Absolutely. you know, as an author, I've always had, I've always had input into covers, um, but uh, it's not my decision. Finally, I mean, this one would be, but uh, you know, when. You know you know what they say in england that they say you don't buy a dog and bark yourself right, right. <laughs> so yep. you don't hire a designer and then say you need to do this you need to do that you know you get him to do it so robin's did a marvelous job
0: no and that's another part of the discussion uh, and this why i went there at this point uh because a lot of self-published authors now are are taking too much on themselves now you and and granted you did a great job with your input on this cover but I think it can be a, a problematic for aspiring authors if you're if you're self-publishing and you're getting involved in editing yourself and and designing your own book cover uh you're probably not to, you know they have professionals for that <laughs> that's, that's, well, people no, that's who, who are good at that
1: yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. I mean, that is that is the thing. I mean, I, I have become what they call a hybrid author now and that I'm still traditionally published. I'm writing fantasy for Golanz at the moment, which is the, uh, a series called the Immortals' Blood Trilogy, uh, which is, um, you know, uh, and they are one of the biggest houses still in the world for fantasy. Um, but, uh, you know, it, when, when the, the editors of London went, this is great, what is it? You know, I thought, okay, I'll do it myself. So I... You know, I've been getting my backlist back. I've been self-publishing that. Um, you know, getting lots of. But you need to get professional people to do the professional's job. So with this book, I've got it edited. I, you know, we've got a great designer. Um, you know, it's um, it, that is very important to me because I think you know it's great that people can get their own books out there and it's marvelous. But the the problem is that a lot of them perhaps know a bit about marketing, but don't know as much about writing, perhaps. And so it's all they need to get, um, you know, they need to get some really good uh, editors involved, people who can give them proper feedback, not their mum, not their girlfriend or, or boyfriend. Um, you know, it, it, they need someone who can really give them dispassionate advice about how to make it better because it's a craft, writing. You know, this, right. is, this is my
0: 20th novel, um, and I've, I've learnt from every one of them. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of books. Uh, so I want, what I'd like to do is go way back and work back to right where we are now in, in terms of discussion. So when you were a young man, uh, was the goal more to be a writer or an actor? And, and what were your dreams and aspirations when, as a young person, was it to be an author? No, not really.
1: I, 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 I don't know. I, I was more, I was just a dreamer. I think, um, I, uh, uh, I, it's hard to look back now and think. Sort of hindsight is, is twenty twenty, right? I mean, it's um, I, I, I always wrote stuff, but I didn't think it was possible to have a career as it. I wasn't going to become an actor either. I mean, I you know uh, I because I come from a family of actors. My dad was an actor. All four grandparents were actors. Um, so my mum, who wasn't an actor, definitely didn't want me to be an actor. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, you know and I, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. So I was going to go to university and read law, or then eventually I thought, I'm passionate about history. But I wasn't terribly academic. And then when I got to 16, I suddenly got quite academic because they were discussing things rather than bombarding me with facts, right? Right. And so suddenly I was going to go to Cambridge and read history. But then at exactly the same time, I got cast in the lead in the school play, having not been an actor at the school before. And it was the wonderful Edward
0: Orby played the zoo story. And I played Jerry in that. Was was your mom excited for you or was she uh, d- upset about you getting the school to-
1: she was pretty upset <laughs> I think she just shrugged her shoulders in the end because we realized that the genetic kick was just too strong to resist but, <laughs> uh, but uh, she uh, yeah she wasn't best pleased however you know she was certainly pleased and and supportive of and I and I did pretty well you know in my 20s and 30s and even into my 40s I worked a lot as an actor. It started to tail off as you get older and, you know, it's a very youth driven industry, but I've, I've kept working. I still, you know, I still do. I'm in nowadays, of course, well, now, not now so much though, funnily enough, as soon as I finish this this uh, interview, I've got to go and do a self tape audition for a side wow. show. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, my hat is still in the ring. Um, but, um, you know, I still managed to get out and do some theatre. Um, uh, I will produce stuff here on Salt Spring Island. We've got quite a community here and a really good uh, professional theatre. So I can put, uh, like I did, I don't know if you're, if you know, Samuel. No. Did Samuel Waiting for Godot, famous one. Uh, I had play of his called Craps Last Tape, which is a one man show. And that was, you know, so challenging and exciting to do. And I had a great, director who's renowned for beckett and so that was that was fun so i still i still get to do that um but you know it's funny in your intro you're talking about audiobooks because that's the big switch i've made in the last couple of years i'm i'm earning my living these days as an audiobook narrator Well, I can
0: see that, and I I went to your website and found out that, and I I definitely want to talk about that as well, because Mm -hmm. I could see you not only reading your own books, but being highly in demand for other people's books, because... Uh well, first of all, the accent is just really, really <laughs> mm-hmm. uh easy on the e- easy on the ears and easy to listen to. But also, you know, clear and articulate and, and all that stuff. So I could see you getting a lot of work from that stuff. Uh is that as rewarding as uh, regular I mean traditional acting. <laughs>
1: Um, you know, it's it, it I have just put my rates up a bit, so that's good. Um, you know, it's it's you can you can earn a fairly good living at it. You know, I mean, I can pay my rent and my groceries and stuff. No, it's it's yeah, pretty, I, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean,
0: personally, rewar- creatively, rewarding not, oh, not creatively just, uh, rewarding,
1: not financially rewarding. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm doing a series. I'm just about to start the third book of a sort of young adult British naval, you know, eighteen hundred series, which is quite good. And the the author of that, we were on a panel together at a conference and he was saying you know they they always used to tell me when I worked in hollywood casting is everything and casting chris humphreys was the right move for this because not only is he a good you know voice actor but he's also a writer so he understands about the writing and he he looks after the writing which was a nice of him to say and it's uh, it's true i mean i'm you know i'm i suppose i have a uh, you know, there's great narrators out there who probably don't even need what I'm going to say. But but as a writer as well, I'm, you know, I really do, I understand how sentences work. I understand story structure. Um, and, you know, I can think ahead perhaps with an, a writer's insight more about how to shape the story. So creatively fulfilling it is, yes, um, because I get to uh, embody characters. I used to do quite a lot of cartoon work in the 90s, the, aforementioned Salem in Sabrina was one thing
0: I did. But um, was, was, did I have that one right before? I mean, I mean that's the uh, Melissa Joan Hart. That's uh, right.
1: The, the 1990s version.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Now I got to go back and li- find those clips and uh, listen to the cat. Talk. Only
1: on the pilot. That's what I said. It was the original voice. We, did, we They oh. stopped the pilot in Vancouver, so they did the post-production in Vancouver. I was cast as Salem the Cat. Uh, the director was in L.A. on a – telephone patch i was in a studio in vancouver spent four hours going i'm trying to talk like a cat with an english actor. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then but then they shifted it if, if they'd stayed the production had stayed in vancouver i'd have i'd have you know had a whole series but they moved to la and of course they weren't going to telephone patch me every week so they got to cast an actor down there
0: Wow. You you got a, a lot going on there. I should mention the website now because we're uh, more than a half hour into the, this discussion. It's authorchrishumphreys.com It's all one word uh, and the link is in the description to make it nice and easy for people. Uh, and on the website there is a bit about the audio books you've done and uh, they can purchase uh, links to purchase your books right from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what else is, is there on their website? There was something else I wanted to ask you about the website. Let me look. Oh, Under the more t- Have Hunt of the Shapeshifters, but it's, I guess, it's incomplete yet. But, uh, what is Hunt of the Shapeshifters? Oh, Hunt
1: of the Shapeshifters is the third book in the Tapestry trilogy about the uh, which begins with the Hunt of the Unicorn, uh, then becomes Hunt of the Dragon is the second book, and then Hunt of the Shapeshifters. This is my full on um fantasy saga that I wrote. Um, wow, uh, Shapeshifters, yeah, because in in the first book, you know, had a unicorn, great second book had a dragon great then i thought what about serial killer shapeshifter dragons so that's the third book
0: now uh i ha- i always ask people who write about this kind of stuff uh, and i it's it's i guess it's a personal question but belief systems i mean uh, for me if i were to get Creative in a way that I I really found it impossible to believe I couldn't do the work. So at some level there must be some seed within you that uh, maybe gives some credence to the shapeshifter type stuff and all and, and all the fantasy type stuff dragons, no?
1: Yeah, oh indeed indeed you know I mean my rational side will probably uh, poo poo it all, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I I am a believer in in magic and it's funny I had a um, one of those what i call hammock moments when i was writing the previous series the runestone saga which was uh, dealing with earth magic and i was there and i was thinking about going back in to do some more writing but i was just swaying in the hammock in the back garden i was living in vancouver at the time and i suddenly thought this i i said magic happens to people who believe in magic and I, you know, it just hit me that that's true, and 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 so much of um the, of of the that magical belief. I don't do witchcraft. I don't have witches going, but the stuff I the stuff I I draw on is based on either myth or legend. In the case of the unicorns and dragons, you know, but people's absolute belief. People have believed in the reality of unicorns far longer than they haven't. You know, I know up until the middle of the nineteenth century, they were convinced
0: they existed. Now, who's to say they don't? I mean, really. Uh, right. A- well, who's to say they don't? Uh, uh, this is how I started. 34 years ago now, started a radio show with the idea of I'm the guy who says they don't. And uh, I was a real hardcore cynic and had people on with all sorts of beliefs from UFOs to Bigfoot. To, and then it got it went down the rabbit hole and we were discussing every kind of belief that uh, that you could imagine and talk to people who claim to be from other planets, talk to uh, time travelers, the whole bit. And so at, I I've evolved from a real hardcore cynic to, as you say, people who believe in magic seem to experience it more. And I, uh, my journey in life took me from that radio show doing that and all those interviews to working for a cult where – People, it was a healing cult, a hands on healing cult that they teach hands on healing. But people in that cult had all sorts of beliefs from, I mean, the whole range of gamut. But I became more of an open-minded person and thinking, well, some of these people, the more they believe in stuff like this, the more the phenomenon seems to happen to them. And so maybe, maybe I shouldn't just poo-poo it. Maybe I should kind of uh, investigate it with an open mind and try to learn something from it and find out what it's all about. And so that's what, this program started as you know an exercise in keeping an open mind and hearing all those kind of beliefs and and stuff like that. I am still uh, like uh, you mentioned unicorns i i I would be a little skeptical i mean heavily skeptical of unicorns, but you know I have had people on with the uh, who believe in the Easter bunny and i, I as like you know that's where i that's where I really have to draw the line and go back to my cynicism. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 but you can believe it. You know, the the, the something like the unicorn is a, is a metaphor for so much other stuff, but uh, healing and uh, curing poisons and uh, and um, uh, redemption. Uh, in and in so it's uh, it's you can believe in it as as a sort of maybe not a literal animal crashing around in a jungle somewhere, but as a as a force of nature that uh, that harnesses people's beliefs. So,
0: right. Well, uh, I have never. You know, not until recently, until I started interviewing authors, never been a huge fan of any kind of fiction. I was basically a nonfiction reader. I would love huh. true crime novels and all this uh, true crime uh, books and all this kind of stuff that, you know, historical books. Now, I become really interested in historical fiction. Mm. And the, the thing is uh, I I want to ask you about is writing historical fiction. Is there a percentage that you go by where you keep history to fiction? Or is it that it determin- each book determines that by by itself when you get to the book, you'll be able to kind of quantify how much is yeah. Uh, really.
1: There's no, <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. There's no prescription uh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's certainly not consciously. Um, what I do is, is uh, try to, uh, um, I I take a situation, usually uh, like a big backdrop. Um, That's what I realized. What I realized with my historical fiction particularly is I I coined this phrase myself a few years ago when I was trying to figure out what it exactly was I did. And I, I realized I write the intimate epic. So it's an epic backdrop. Um, such as, for example, you know, Dracula, the real Dracula, or the siege of Constantinople. One of my books is called The Place Called Armageddon. It's a multi-narrator, both sides of the wall look at the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Um, or um, Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare at the time when he was writing Hamlet, which is my particular obsession, and Hamlet and Sorge. In that book, so two obsessions. Um, but so I, I will take a I will take a, uh, a premise, and I will read the hell out of the background, and find those springboards that I talked about before the springboards for the imagination, and then I will weave interweave real characters, uh, historical characters, and some books have more, some less, and fictional characters who who I'm able therefore to um, uh, explore a, a very different life. You know, you're slightly constrained by facts about people. of course you know uh, prejudice or someone's uh, um you know propaganda after the event right the further you go back in history that's more and more true um but right. uh, but I will I will take the actual facts but then I will weave in so um for example, um, my my book, Plague, which you mentioned, which one, which which also surprise, surprise, has been doing quite well lately. Would you believe in the last couple of years? But it's a it's a religious fundamentalist serial killer story set during the Great Plague of London. So Ooh. it's sixteen sixty five. Backdrop is this huge uh, uh, pandemic, killing thousands in London, hundreds of, hundred of thousand in the end. But against that, you, I have a, a highwayman. And a thief taker who's after him, and the highwayman is suspected of these grisly murders, which in fact he didn't do. And so they have to join forces and track down the actual killer, who's part of this um, religious fundamentalist group called the Fifth Monarchists, um, who are all about, um, you know, the Book of Revelations and Daniel and all that, uh, all that hellfire stuff and the return of King Jesus. And so, so that is that's what I do. So I have, um, I had. Uh, I had those fictional characters who I made up, but based on a life they might have led, I researched highwaymen, or researched thief-takers, every character in that book, um, the male characters anyway, all have whatever the 17th century equivalent of PTSD is. And wow. so they're all coming out of a heavy, heavy, awful, the English Civil War, ghastly, as all wars, as particularly civil wars are. And so, so that was something that factored hugely into how they related to the world. And, um, and, and, but then I had the king. The king was a character in the book. The prime minister of the time, they didn't call him that, but you know, he was a, he was a uh, and there was a famous um, reprobate uh, poet called the Earl of Rochester. He figures in the book, and they're all important. They're not just decoration. They all affect the plot as well, and they affect my fictional characters. So I interweave that, and, uh, and that is what dictates the fiction. And but it's people always say, oh, I learned so much reading your books. And I go, well, you enjoy the story because that's the important thing. But the details in the books, you know, as you know, I, I get, you know, some people will pick you up because there's always a panel of critics out there who want to go. Wait a second. This can't be true. But, um, you know, uh, I try to be scrupulous about the historical research because I love history. But um, it's, uh, you know, I, I, essentially, I uh, I. Um, I, I fictionalize real characters
0: and then realize fictional ones. You know, so. Right. Well, that the people who ask you uh, or, or comment to you, I learned so much from your books. That's me, and and this is the, my problem uh, with becoming a fan of historical fiction now is I tend to. Think everything i'm reading is true wow. and now it's, I, it's it's because because of some on some level i want it to be true because it fits to the story if, if the story is a good story and i'm satisfied with the story then i want all the events i learned to be uh, in the uh, process of getting to the end of the book to be true and then when i find out i'm not i'm kind of like well what what is true and what's not true because uh, i'm thinking i'm taking a history lesson when i'm actually uh just being told a story with a moral. <laughs> well, right, well, there you are. Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 obviously happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing for me within within that genre to, to kind of. I think authors should kind of give us uh, some kind of hint like what you're about to read is historical fiction this is what's true and this is not or even at the end of the book so we we, we know we're, you know we don't take it as a history lesson yeah so,
1: I, I, I tend to do that you know i i do i will put in an author's note at the end which will fess up when i've bent the history uh extraordinarily you know um yeah. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of it's, especially the further back you go, a lot of it's up for grabs, right? Because as I right. said before, you know, what is a fact? You know, it's it's what someone chose to emphasize that at that time.
0: Well, um, yeah, history is full of... Um bad lessons, things we were taught that weren't really true, especially, you know, even in American history, which is the shortest history or a shorter, one of the shorter histories of all the nations in the world. (laughs) Um, I know a lot of the things we were taught in school about American history just were just myths and made-up nonsense and, like, might as well be. So knowing what real history is is always a a problem. Um, Talk to me a little bit because you're so... Deep and so um, creative is the only word to, to use for it in, in your characters. I want to know a little bit about your creative process. So, you in like with one London day, you start with this one event, but then all these characters that you add on there and these multiple layers. How does the story come to you? Is it, are you one of these people who? Just sits down and writes and lets it come, like channels it from uh, the ether, (laughs) or 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 do you plot it out? Do you make notes? Do you make plot notes? And tell me a little bit about the actual process of writing. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. I'm not a a great uh, uh, pre-plotter. I'm. Uh, be, I'm I, what what got me into writing, or got me into at least finishing stuff? Because for years I wrote stuff and put it aside because I didn't think it was good enough. Was the realization that uh, that writing is a uh, is a process. It, it's you know it, it's it's a series of stages to be taken rather than this end goal that that you've got to reach. So so I build up a story, I build up a novel. Um, really, through the through the characters and their interactions, and what they're after, what they want, their objectives, what they encounter that gets in the way of that, their obstacles, and that creates the action. Um, and when I think of it as in terms of, of process, as we say in England, not process. Um, um, uh, I, I write a first draft entirely for me. You know, it's uh, this, and I teach this as well. I say your first draft is only for you. Your mother's not going to see it. Your girlfriend's not going to see it. You know, No one's going to see it. So they can't judge you. Never show anyone your first draft. And the other thing I, I, I like in it, and this is the course I teach sometimes, I call it the mountain, the novel as a series of ascents. And the first ascent up that mountain is like this free climb. And you look at the top of the mountain, you think, oh, I'll never get up there. That's what I thought for years. But then I realized that what you can do is you go well? I the top of the mountain. I can't get there now, but I can certainly get there. There's a finger hole, and I'm off the ground. And then you go, and that's literally your first sentence, almost. And you're off the ground. And keep climbing. Don't look down. Is my other thing. And um, and so I I blast through a first draft quite quickly, letting the characters dictate the plot as much as possible. Now it's a slight catch because, of course, history. If I'm writing about a historical. Um, event, Siege of and Fall of Constantinople, it's going to have those things that I know I'm going to want to touch, I'm going to want to deal with. Uh, Something like One London Day. I I know that, actually less so with One London Day, because I I really developed the characters to interact. I knew I wanted to write about these different people. How would their encounters with each other lead to the next... um, part of the situation. And so that, even though it's, you know, it's got, I think it's got a, you know, a good plot, the story, it's a thriller, it's all that stuff. But it's also very much about people, Uh, people having um, difficult times, interesting times, you know, obviously, you know, crime times in in this situation, but how they react to circumstance. And so I find with my characters, I can, uh, they will react in some way that I hadn't foreseen. I have this ridiculous phrase that I, I quote sometimes because it, it, people go, what? But I, I tell them it's the secret of writing. So all your listeners now can learn the secret of writing, which is
0: writing is writing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I thought you were going to give us uh, something more than that. but no, uh, no, yeah. it's,
1: it's very profound because it's not thinking about writing. Right. Right. A lot of people get caught up thinking about writing or thinking they have to make something good or special or whatever. Writing happens when you're writing. Uh, You know, you can you have to go back and edit. You have to go back and fix. You have to go back and think about the route. You didn't take up the mountain that might have been better or, you know, or there's something you discovered that you didn't pursue. Uh, So all that has to happen as
0: well. That's the craft of writing. Um, Uh, Even before you got to that uh, writing is writing uh, thing, uh, I think you gave away a great piece of advice in conquering what people call writer's block, uh, because if that first draft (coughs) is only for you, only for your eyes, then there's no reason to have writer's block, because I think what writer's block is really is we're afraid to write uh, garbage (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I don't believe in writer's block. I, well, you know, I,
1: I, I, un, I understand the term, and I understand people have it, but I, 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 just think, you know, why? You can always do something in writing, right? You know, but if, if, you're not, if, if, you can think of the process, you think of it as a series of stages. It's not the top of the mountain. It's climbing up the mountain, you know, and and. You know, there, there'll, there'll be times when when it's a little harder. But I've, you know, in twenty novels and four plays, I've walked away from my desk maybe five times, not and stopped writing
0: because I think, oh, I, I can't write today. You know, <laughs> it's interesting. So it's, but you have a, you must have a very fertile imagination because these characters that you described uh, coming from this single event. I don't think most people, just because they're sitting in front of a typewriter or a word processor, whatever your process is to do whether they're even writing longhand, I don't think these characters are just going to come out of the ether just starting from that one singular event as an idea. I mean, that's – how do you – do you have have any idea how you develop that – uh, fertile creativity. Do you, you know, do you practice meditation? Any of that I, do, of I do meditate in
1: fact. Yes. Um, but uh, that's just more to come my seething brain. I'm, I've never been short of ideas. I've been a storyteller all my life, even before, you know, as a kid, I was the kid on the block with the other kids going, right. You're the bad guy. You're the sheriff. I'm the hero in the hat. You are the, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, you're, you're the bandits coming down from there. You no, know, I was that guy. So, um, uh, I'd always had that, that sort of storytelling impetus. And, um, you know, with, with the characters, it, it really is that it's a building block thing. You know, you, if, 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 um, if the hitman is in the gym doing a workout and he's, he's actually got a CD on because it's one of these old crappy gyms attached to a squash club, so they actually still have a CD player, which he prefers because he doesn't like having headphones on because he likes to hear when someone comes through the door. Right. right. That's a simple fact. But, but, you know, you don't know he's a hitman yet. You just know that this is a guy who's wary, and he's got three phones, and two of them have music as their tone, so he knows who's calling. It's his ex-wife. It's his current girlfriend. Rondo Turk is one that thinks, oh, it's the ex-wife, you know, and he has to talk to her. But the phone that doesn't have the tone is the one he's been waiting for, and it's a cheap one he's just bought, uh, and, he's gonna, and he breaks it up and throws it in the toilet once he knows where the hit is so right. all that stuff just was a series i didn't i didn't know that when i sat down that morning to write that scene i didn't know that was going to happen
0: no uh but i would venture to say and i say this a lot and i don't know how right i am but i i'm definitely convicted and, and i believe it is that uh you can't be a writer without rich experience now that experience can be real or can be read or you know taken in vicariously, but you've had to have uh, exposure to some kind of those ideas and rich experiences, rich characters in your life somewhere. I think part of the problem with aspiring writers that I know that who struggle with the character development or developing interesting characters that people want to know more about is because they live very narrow sheltered lives and don't read a lot, don't go out a lot, don't, don't experience the world. So I think experiencing the world is what it is the key to writing those uh, characters. I'll let you educate me if I'm wrong.
1: No, I, I, think you, I think you are right about that. I mean, I've had a very varied life. I've done a lot of traveling. I've met a lot of people. Uh, I've been involved with a lot of people. I've, uh, I've always, you know, part of the storytelling thing for me was always about having experiences. So I, I have all that to build on. I'm, I've always been fascinated by people. Um, motivation, of course, as an actor, you know, when you're developing characters, you know, people, the cliche is what's your motivation? You know, what do you want? Um, why does someone want that? Not that, you know? So um, so I can, uh, and having played a lot of roles as an actor, a variety of roles from, you know, Hamlet to the cat to, you know, Conard <laughs> to doctors to all sorts of people, right? Soldiers and and. And um, priests and uh, all sorts of things. So, so that gives you a bit of an insight into, you know, because you try to think in a different
0: way to how you think. Um, yeah, I would say Hamlet to uh, Starfleet Commander to the cat is as wide a stretch as any actor I've ever talked to on this. Yeah, I, I've, done a few, I've done a few things. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I talk to people a lot about this, and because. Because there's no protagonist, no single protagonist in in uh, one London day, uh, it probably throws a real hole in my theory. In that, because I, th- I heard somewhere, and one of the uh, uh, Renaissance artists, and don't ask me, it might have been Da Vinci, might have been uh, Rembrandt, I don't know who it was, buddy. Uh, one of them said that every art, every artist, or work uh, creates uh, every work an artist creates is in some ways a self-portrait. Mm. Now I bring that up to people because who do have <laughs> a single protagonist in, in their book because I always think that in some way the protagonist is the idealized version of yourself in some ways, but that can't be with you in this book in particular. But is the work uh, in some way a uh, self-portrait? The, the finished work? Uh it's interesting because i've I've written some
1: pretty extreme characters. I mean I think you know um, wh- when I wrote the book uh, Vlad, The Last Confession, I was dealing with someone who comp- who uh, um, may did unspeakable things to people. He was Vlad the Impaler, right? And I didn't think I could write it to start with. Then I started exploring more of his background. I found out about his motivation, you know ripped away from his family at an early age, flung into the Turkish custody, is raised as a hostage, educated brilliantly and then having that all taken away and he thrown in the worst prison in Turkey for two years um, and then said, you have to take your throne back. Here's a sword. Here's an army. You know, all sorts of things about what might have happened to him. And I extrapolated that to try to get a grip on him. But but what really changed it for me was one of my advisors. It was actually, a, I met her at a conference and, and then I couldn't get in touch with her again because she was a CIA spook. But she was very into the subject. And she told me, uh, you know, I was talking to her about it. I was saying, oh, you know, I don't want to whitewash the guy. You know, what if I humanize him? And she said, you can't humanize him because he is human. Like I it's go, a good point. And so I use as an epigraph at the very beginning of that book a quote from a Roman writer I found. And it says, I am a man. Nothing human is alien to me. And I think we encompass all that. You know, there are, what's that thing about multitudes? You know, within, we, we you know, I, I'm not going to go out and impale people, nor am I going to go out and, and uh, do a hit on people. But it's not a huge leap of imagination to find that part of me, which given a different hand of cards at my upbringing, you know, when I was born and, and the family I was born into and the education I had. Given a completely different set of circumstances, you can project out how that person would react to the world. So, wow,
0: interesting! Yeah, very interesting take on that. Wow, thank you for that. Um, But and you mentioned you're working on something that has to do with a serial killer, uh, a a religious fundamentalist serial killer. I think you said. Now, when I was 30 years ago or so, I was hooked on reading. true crime books and serial killers and all this stuff. And I found that it did affect my psyche ah. in, in dark ways. Is writing it, is is, is there some, you know, leftover psych, uh, psychic baggage that comes with writing a really dark story? I think you really? wanted
1: to ask my two ex-wives about that. I don't
0: like... <laughs> Uh, writing about a serial killer. I mean, I just I I know reading about them. I I became, uh, you know, I had to be on guard for you know what am I letting in, yeah. and so um I, w- I would imagine creating one in your own mind and manifesting that person to put down on on paper uh, must be a little a lot like all those books that I read that I, I, I you know a- after a while I said I got to take take a step back from the- from this stuff because right. It's kind of affecting my psyche a little bit.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't really find that too much. Um, You know, I I, I certainly dwell in the world of the book I'm writing at the time. I think that can be a uh, not a problem for people. They just, you know, uh, I'm not always entirely tethered to the the current life situation or the planet because a part of me is always writing the book. Um, You know, no matter. You know, there's that wonderful story, which may or may not be true, and it may not or may not be something that happened to me. I'm saying nothing. But the uh, the, the uh, couple are lying in bed, and he's a writer, and it's 3 in the morning, and their first child is awake again, screaming in the other room. And the wife elbows him hard and says, it's your turn. And he goes, shh, I'm working.
0: <laughs> I know the feeling, man. I know it That
1: might have been me. I'm not saying anything
0: there. Does that cross over to acting as well? Do you have trouble getting out of character?
1: Uh, it, it depends on the character very much,
0: you know. The, I, I have had that experience, and that's why I didn't pursue acting more than I did. People used to, uh, say, you know, you got to stop. You can't take this stuff home with you because I would once I would get into character, that would it would be days after the bit was over, and I'd still be doing it. Yeah, maybe. I know.
1: <laughs> I've had some roles that have that have haunted me. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we are out of time. I wish we could talk more because you're a very fascinating guy with so much to offer here. Uh, the current book is called One London Day. It's five people, two murders, one day. And you can find out more at authorchrishumphreys.com. Again, the link is in the description for people. Chris, I, I or CC, Chris CC. Chris. Uh, I, welcome to, to the show and thank you for, for uh, all you brought to the show. And I wish you continued success. And listen, when your next book comes out, I'd be really, really uh grateful if you came back here to talk about it when you're ready to uh to start pushing it a little Uh, bit i would i would
1: be delighted thank you so much it's been
0: been great fun talking with you thank you it's been great thanks for coming and and continue success and bye for now thank you chris humphreys folks cc humphreys uh a great conversation there Um, and again this just goes back to i hate to say well, look it proves me right but um you really did the best Uh, creative work comes from creative people, from from people who live interesting lives and uh, non-one-dimensional, you know, multi-dimensional people, I should say. Uh, And so here's your perfect example. I mean, we've talked to a lot of authors. Uh, I don't think anybody has given me such a deep uh, imagery of the characters they created for a certain book in any of the descriptions in 200-plus 250 author interviews great stuff uh, I hope you appreciate it I hope you check out his book it's called uh, one London day again the link is in the description to his website and uh, I hope you just check out all of his work because it's really and I'm gonna go back and see if I can find the pilot <laughs> the Sabrina thing because I'm just I'm curious now to hear the cat talk I don't even remember what the cat sounded like anyway that's our show for theme for this evening tomorrow night 8 pm. Brett Erickson, the fabulous comedian who is now Austin, Texas based, uh, will be with me. Should be a fun night. Join me then. Till then I'm at the Mind Dog TV Podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great night and bye for now.